Lord, we truly exalt Thee. And as we come together as a company of Your people, as a gathering of Your people, that Your name will be exalted. Father, we just pray for Shane as he takes the pulpit today, that You will be with him. You will be his all in all. Father, that You will just apply his needs and that we will be attentive. The hunger that we have to learn Your Word and to share in Your Word, Lord, and to have fellowship together. May the children that go to the Sunday school classes be blessed this morning as well. And may they be a blessing to our teachers. We thank you for our teachers. We thank you for all things. Be with us, we do ask, in your holy and worthy name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I've been asked uh, this morning to come here and speak with you um, about Absalom. One of the struggles of coming into a church when they're going through a series, you don't know what's been said beforehand. And you don't know really where they're up to. Because I walked in this morning, I saw, oh, I'm doing Second Samuel 18. Well, you're going to get verse, chapter 13 through to 18 this morning. <laughs> but it's, it's incredible to see uh, you growing like this. It's a real joy to see how God is working in, in Hokanui Bible Church today. Now, I'm going to start off with uh, looking at Absalom. And uh, before we get there, I just want to, share something that I've seen so often, and it's a real struggle that I think we have often. You know, I often talk with people. Uh, my role in the, in the uh, Bible Chapel is community, and I'm often working with people in community, and often one of the big struggles they have is this area of bitterness towards something that's happened in their life. And I've seen how bitterness can cripple decisions in people's lives, it can cripple their whole lives, and it becomes everything in their lives. It just takes them over and not being able to get over things. I've seen this both in Christians and non-Christians alike. You know, Christians aren't uh, exempt from this. In fact, I've seen Christians who will cross the road so they don't have to talk to another Christian because they have something in their lives that they don't want to talk to this person. They've got bitterness, they've got grudges, they've and it really pulls down the whole concept of what Christianity is about. I've also seen someone who held on to bitterness for over 45 years till her deathbed. I spent uh, the time with her just before she died, and she kept going on about what happened back in 1974. And it was, you know, she, she passed away two years ago. And all she could see was this bitterness in her lives. And I think it really grasped us. And as I was looking at the life of Absalom, I was really taken by how his life was directed and guided by the bitterness in his life. Now, if you look at his name, it's Father of Peace. That wasn't his life. That wasn't the life of Absalom. And uh, so I've renamed it, and I've called these chapters uh, Overcome by Bitterness. So we're going to be going through quite a few verses. So if you open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to be jumping along the way as we look through it. But before we see this guy, Absalom was a guy of great potential. When you think about Absalom, he had the opportunity to do something great in that nation. He was, first of all, he was born into the royalty. He was born uh, the son of David, one of the greatest kings or the greatest king that has been on earth until uh, Christ returns. He was in this family. He'd come into this family. He was favoured by his dad. He, lo he was loved by his father. But not only that, he was also born as the son of the uh, daughter of the king of, of another kingdom. 
So he was born into to, to a royal family. He had everything going for him. This one, I'm afraid God missed me out on this one. He was praised for his looks. He was the most handsome guy. If you read chapter 14, verses uh, 25 and 26 in 2 Samuel, it says, Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the head, hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, some of us don't have that problem, as you can see. But he was an amazing-looking young guy. But his hair would be his downfall, as you'll see later on. We'll get to that. But he, he was in a position, he, he, he was loved, he was in a royal family, he looked great, and uh, he was loved by David. In 1 Samuel 18, 33, it says, you know, when, when Absalom had passed away, he said, Oh, my Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son. And, and that repeating in Hebrew is that a, a real intense emphasis that David loved him. He didn't cry like that for any of his others, other sons. So he was loved by, by David. So he, he could have been a great leader. He could have been an amazing young man who took, took, joined two nations together, joined two kingdoms together, who would have been a great guy if he allowed himself to be. But that all changed, as you know, when you looked at chapter 13, didn't it? I understand you've looked at chapter 13 and what happened in there. Is that right? Someone's nodding your head. Yep, okay. In chapter 13, we know what happened. His uh, uh, sister was raped by Amnon. And what happens is he becomes bitter about it. He finds out. He finally forces it out of his sister, and he is filled with what? Revenge. For two whole years, it tells us in first, uh, 2 Samuel 14 to 23, for two full years, uh, he was looking for a chance to get back. And that's what bitterness does in our lives. When we start getting a grudge or when we start uh, focusing on things we don't like happening to us, we start looking for a way to get back. And we often hear this, uh, this term that says, um, your time will come. Your time will come. You know, already we're sort of thinking about revenge. And, and you may say, oh, I'm not really, but that's what that is. Because we become bitter about things that happen in our lives. And it starts controlling us. And it really controlled him. He spent two years looking for that opportunity to get revenge. Now, we could say, well, David was actually, you know, the, the cause of this. It's so easy to blame him, isn't it? David, you should have uh, acted out ju uh, justly and punished them. You should have done this job. So it's your fault that I'm like this. But no. You see, I hear that often. People saying to me, it's someone else's fault. They should have done that. But each of us have our own choice, how we react, how we respond. And Absalom chose to get revenge. So bitterness filled him with revenge, and bitterness really controls people. And I've seen how, you know, we have a community cafe at the at Te Awamutu, and we deal with uh, different people, and I can see, I see, you know, two great friends suddenly no longer sit together, don't talk to each other, don't greet each other, 
And all because something happened uh, a couple of days ago or, or yesterday, and now this lady used to come in her car, now she won't pick her up, and, and it just controls us because we're filled with revenge. But that's not all. This is the, uh, I'm sure none of you will do this, but this is the ultimate of bitterness. It created a murderer, Absalom. After two full years, he found the opportunity, tells us in 2 Samuel 13, the opportunity came for him to call Ammon. And when he did it, it didn't make him feel any better. In fact, after he'd done that, what happened? It led to fear. So he's got revenge for his sister. He's killed this guy, his half-brother, by the way, killed him off, and you'd think, now that's just, I've got revenge. But it didn't result in that. And that's often what happens when you have this decision of bitterness in our lives or these grudges. You may do something and think it's the end, but it's not. It leads to fear. So because of Absalom's murderous act, he ran away. And he went off to where his mother uh, lived. And uh, often you find people who have grudges are always in fear. People who have bitterness in their life tend to fear what's going to happen next. And as I talk to people and talk to them about this, they're always afraid of what their brother's going to do or the, the person they are up against. You know, there's all this, this fear. There's no freedom when you're full of bitterness. There's no freedom when you have grudges in your life. You're always afraid of what's going to happen next. And you'll always go back and say, but it's his fault, her fault, not my fault. One thing I want to get across today, there is always a choice for you to make. Absalom had a choice. Absalom had a choice. But he chose to go a way that was not helpful. But in the beauty of God, there was the opportunity to repent, wasn't there? You know, in uh, 2 Samuel 14, he returns to Jerusalem and uh, the king says, come back and live here. And, and if you'd thought about it, Absalom sort of said, I'll go to the king and I'll, I'll ask for his forgiveness. He had that opportunity to repent. In fact, in Samuel in 2 Samuel 14.33, it says, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. King David accepted Absalom. He was willing to forgive. And in the, when you look at this picture, you look, it sort of looks like Absalom's repenting, doesn't it? It sort of looks like He's come before the king and he's bowed and he kissed. But if you know the whole story of Absalom, you know he came because of a need. He wanted something. And that's what bitterness does. It causes a, what we call a two-faced side of a person. So when I need something, and often I deal with uh, many people, and often uh, you'll find people have these real... I was talking to, to one of our friends about it, and he said, um, this person is really anti this friend of mine. 
and he, oh, they, they, they don't say anything nice. But one day, uh, actually this week, they rung him. He said, look, I, can you take me grocery shopping today? And my friend had a choice to make, and he said, what do I do, Shay? I said, take her. Show her that you're not affected by it. But as soon as he'd done that, she rang me up afterwards and complained about him taking her grocery shopping. You know, you, when you have a need, you have this two-facedness about it, and it's bitterness. And this is what Absalom was like. He had this grudge, but as soon as he needed, had a need of the king, he went there. And he never really repented. And I thought about that. Often people come to the Lord like that. Often people come to know Jesus Christ like that, but they don't really know Jesus Christ. But they had a need, so they come before God and say, Lord, I need this. And God helps them, and then they walk away again. This was what the life of Absalom was happened, was like. He was a two-faced, bitter man who used people. But he, was a, he had this great potential, but he couldn't live up to it because he is overtaken by bitterness. But then, even more, bitterness created a rebel. He couldn't agree with King David. He couldn't stand King David. So he started sowing doubt about the leader of Israel. If you go to 2 Samuel 15, Abraham would say this, see your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. He's planting doubt in people's minds about the leader. He's planting doubt about who the king really is. And he's starting to become the rebel. His bitterness said, I want to take the throne. It could have been his. The king probably would have gladly given it to him. But he went about it the wrong way. And often you see this happening that people start sowing doubt about someone in leadership. And that's why it says in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament that if someone comes to the, to the elders about one of the elders, there needs to be real proof about it. That's a side issue, not in my notes, sorry. But as a leader, we need to be, you know, if you, you have something against the leader, go and talk to the leader. Not backbite in the background. Not go behind his back and say, Oh, do you know oh, Paul is like this? Do you know Shane is doing this? All hearsay. He started doubting. And, and what he did was he focused on something that people could grasp. Yeah. Yeah, if he was a good king, he would be putting someone here. He started focusing on something that they could grasp. But then he did something more in verse 4. He promised a better life. Said, Oh, that I were the judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. So he started building himself up now. He said, I'm better than King David. You know, if I was king, I could do this. If I was the leader, this would happen. All based around that bitterness for what happened in his, to his sister. And he was, you know, if you think about it, if I were judge of the land, what happened to his sister? There was no judgment. There was no punishment. There was no justice. Now he's focusing on if I was the judge, if I was the leader, so he's starting to build a base. And man, how many times I've seen this when people don't agree with other people. They start going to people and start saying, yeah, but if I was there, you know, if, if, if we did this, 
And it comes from that grudge or that bitterness. But it also built a great base for rebellion. And whenever a man came near to pay homage, verse 5 of 2 Samuel 15, to him, he would put out his hand and hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. One of the things you find with people who are full of bitterness or grudge, and they start getting people to come onto their side. They start taking people and saying, look, if I was like that, and look, oh, you're such a great guy. And they start praising you for, for different things, and slowly you build up a, a base for rebellion. You know, we, we, we lived in the Philippines for a number of years. Uh, um, I was a missionary there. My wife's here today, which is great. Uh, we were over there for 24 years, and, and we had the, what we call the NPAs. They were the new people's army, and they were the communist army. And what they do is they, they go in and they, they teach young people about how bad the government is, and they can do something about it. So they start recruiting people, and they build a base for a rebellion. And in Rennie's province, where she came from, they had actually had the commun- one of the communist bases there, the NPA bases there. They're quite scary. You know, one day we were sitting there in Rennie's uh, uh, auntie's place, talking away to the, at her little sari sari store. Now, a sari sari store is like a dairy, but it's got bars on it and all that. But we were, we were sitting there, and this couple came up, and we just started talking away, and you know, no, no problem. We just started talking, and uh, my natural reaction was to start sharing the gospel and, and talk with them. Anyway, uh, they left. And Rennie's auntie says, oh, Shane, I'm glad you said nothing against the MPA. She said, why is that? She said, that's the eagle, one of the eagle units. The eagle units is the ones that would go round. Uh, oh, sorry, it's the sparrow units. That was a sparrow unit. They're on R&R. But they are, the R&R group are the ones that are in Manila shooting all the policemen. So they go over in threes on motorbikes. And if you said anything against the NPA, thankfully the Lord didn't cut my tongue that time, I think. It's actually interesting. You have your sparrow units, then the government started the eagle units, which would chase after these sparrow units. But it was building a base, and they would start building a base against the government. This is what Absalom was doing. So that people would turn against the king. When you look at it, isn't it, you know, so doubt, promised a better life, and you think about it, isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden as well? Satan came along. He was bitter and full of pride. He had been chucked out of heaven. What did he do? He went up and says, did God really say that? You know, if you, if, you, if you take a bite of that, you'll be like God. Promise of a better life. And he said, you will know good and all. You will know what is good and wrong and bad. So he started to build a base of rebellion, which we face today as well, because Exactly the same thing. You see, that's what bitterness and grudges can do. That's what they can do. It becomes, we become more like Satan. But that wasn't the end of it. Bitterness created a liar. I'm going to read uh, 2 Samuel 15, 7 to 12. 
verse, chapter 15, verses 7 to 12, it says this. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messages throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifice, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. He became a liar. He lied to David, the king. He had had the opportunity to repent, but here he is lying. And it might have been a half-truth. He might have said, I'd made a vow to go and offer worship to the Lord in Hebron. He might have made that, that vow, but it was actually a half-truth. It was a lie because he was gaining support. He wanted to, 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 to take the king over, and he starts preparing for it, and he gets everyone behind him. And I love the fact that he said there were 200 men who had no idea what was going on. Well, men, probably that's half our lives, but never mind. But uh, there's 200 men who had no idea. They were innocent. And they went along with Absalom thinking they were doing the king a favor, going with Absalom. They were probably protecting him from the bandits and all that. And they were going along thinking, well, you know, this is really neat. Absalom's come, become, you know, worshiping the Lord and he, he's doing it. But what's happening? Absalom and his bitterness and his grudge is preparing to take over the kingdom. And in, in front of that, and this is what it really gets me, he convinced a king's ally to follow him. You see, once people start gaining ground and, 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 and a lie, they easily convince other people if we are not aware of what God is doing in our lives. Here there is this man, turns against King David, being his ally, being his counsellor, and he turns against David. Because Absalom was so convincing. And I often say to people, when you hear a story of someone's drama, make sure they hear the other side, because the other side has always got a different view on it. But it is amazing how quick we take the sides of people and, and we start believing people without really thinking about, is this true? And I'm not saying it's not cringes, I'm saying it's us as well. We need to start looking at what, what is being said, what is true, so that we aren't convinced to a falseness. And so comes the battle. David flees Jerusalem, heads out, gets out of town. Um, when you think about it, David could have raised up an army, but I guess when you think about it, it's his son. And when, he said, when, when they did go to war, he said, take care of this guy, Absalom. It's my son. Don't kill him. So I guess he runs out of Jerusalem thinking, if I give it over, there'll be no war, nothing. But they end up in the woods of Ephraim, and a big war starts. And what happens? 
Burton has brought the destruction of Absalom. His life had become so, uh, so rough and so bad, he is defeated by a small army. He's defeated and by this army that, that uh, David had with him, with these servants he had, and he takes over and says 20,000 were killed on that day. So you can see how many people that Absalom had convinced. But something he had mistaken or forgotten was that the Lord was on David's side. And David was given a victory. But he did say, he did say, don't kill my son. Deal gently, in chapter 18, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. You see, Jesus, uh, David loved his son. Despite everything that had happened, despite all that, he, that, that, it, that Absalom had done, David still loved his son. And I think, man, what an example for us. You know, you know still love those who hold grudges against us on our side. Not, not if we have the grudge or we're bitter, but the people that are bitter against us still love them, still care for them, still look after them. As, as, as uh, the guy that rang me this week, he says, look, it's our responsibility as, as, as God-fearing people to look after it, even if they disagree with us. Like David, he looked after Absalom. He was totally convinced, you know, Absalom shouldn't be killed. Deal with him gently. But that wasn't what happened, was it? In First Samuel, Second Samuel 18, we read the story of Absalom. We start at verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. This big hair, because he, what, what, what he used to do is tie up his hair when he went to battle, and he got caught. The pride of his life, his hair, and he got caught, stuck between branches, and it caused his downfall. You know, there are things in our lives that are, we are very, very proud about. We've got to remember that God has given us New life, and it is only because of God. It's not because of us. Nothing we can do can change our lives. Only God can do that. But the story didn't end there. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What you saw, what you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Job, even if I felt it in my hand, the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you, and Abishai, and Ethai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Job said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. 
Why do you think Joab was so adamant about that? Well, I just like to think he was killed by another bitter man. You know what happened? Back earlier, when Absalom wanted to see the king, he went and burnt Joab's fields. So Joab was looking for an opportunity to get back at him. So here was another bitter man, and that's something you notice with bitterness. If you are bitter, and where's uh, uh, Billy? I know Billy. So I'm really bitter against Billy, so I'm doing things to Billy. And then Jonathan there says, well, I'm going to take care of Shane for you, Billy. And uh, Jonathan becomes bitter, bitter, and and it just grows. And you may think, ah, that doesn't happen. I'll I'll tell you a story. A true one. As a missionary, we'd travel around New Zealand when we came home. And I used to be, not now, but I used to be involved in the gym. Okay, yeah, I was a lot thinner then. <laughs> Jonathan, though. When we got to Hornby in Christchurch, I went to a gym there. And I walked in this gym, and I was going to sign in, and there was this name, Shane Wildemoth. And I thought, I haven't been here yet. So I asked the guy at the desk, he says, who's this? He says, oh, he's in there now. He says, oh, because I'm Shane Wildemoth too. So I put my name under his name and went into the gym, and here was Shane Wildemoth. And we got talking, and we were about the same age, and we had a really neat time together talking. And he said, Shane, give us a call, and we'll go out for dinner with your wife and that. He said, yeah, great. So finish up gym, go home, and then the next day I rung. And this is basically the conversation. I rang the phone, that number I'd given, and Shane's father picked it up. And I said, hey, hello, is Shane there? He said, Who's this? Oh, I'm Shane Wildemore. Where are you from? I'm from the North Island. Put the phone down on me. Didn't have any clue what was happening. It wasn't until um, 2004 that we found out the story. My great-great-great-grandfather fathers had run away from Ireland and catched a boat to Raglan, and they were on this boat, and while they were on the boat, they had a big scrap. So one of them jumped off the boat at Raglan and swam ashore. The other guy carried on. He went down to Christchurch. They had this grudge, and they held that grudge all their lives. They passed it on to the next great-grandfather, then they passed it on to my grandfather, and then my grandfather passed it on to his sons. So when I rang up, he was still thinking about it, something that happened in the 1800s. And we found that out in um, 2004 when I went to go and speak at Tikawiri, at Taumaranui, because uh, the guy there where we spoke at, he was a policeman at Taumaranui, and he says, Wildemoth, I know that name. Oh, I put him in prison on, on Friday night. I said, I'm a, I'm a good Wildemoth. <laughs> but this grudge just carried on and on and on. And the bitterness just carried on. And, and in the Philippines, you know, in some of the Philippines, they know what that's like. I remember one day that uh, uh, some cousins were getting, were drinking. They were, they were about 45, 50, and they were drinking and they got drunk. And uh, I, Rennie's dad and I turned up and here they were going at each other with these long bolos, knives. And we got them apart and we held them apart. And you know what they were fighting about? The brother stole his girlfriend when he was 15 years old. 
You see, we, we hold on to these grudges and this bitterness, and it just builds in our lives. And it destroys us. It destroys everything about us, even as Christians. We can't live for God because there is bitterness in our lives, and we've got to get through it. We've got to overcome it. And that's where I really want to finish. How do we overcome bitterness in our lives? Absalom never did. And the first thing we need to do is come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot overcome bitterness by ourselves. We cannot overcome grudges by ourselves. Because there is our human nature that says, I am better than you. That's human nature. And we need to come before Christ and says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You need to, we need to come before Christ and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I don't know if this is allowed in this church, but I'm going to say it anyway. And because I'm a sinner, I'm going to hell. And because I'm going to hell, I need a saviour. And that saviour is you, Lord Jesus. And when you look at Romans, we have a, a men's Bible study group in a, in a coffee shop on Thursday mornings. We were looking at this and we were talking about it. In Romans, when you came to the Lord Jesus said, He is Lord, you were willing to have your head chopped off. You were willing to be fed to the lies. You were willing to be nailed to the cross because you were saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that's what we need to get back to in our Christian faith. Jesus is Lord. He is master. He is most important than anything else in this world. He's more important than that job. He's more important than the promotion. He's more important than the, the brand new car. Jesus is the most important thing. And we need as a church, and, and, and in this world, you know, we're very privileged at the moment. We're running Alpha, and we're seeing people come to the Lord there because there is confusion in our world. If there's one thing great about this COVID-19, no matter what you believe about it, I listen to people talking about conspiracies and all sorts of stuff, no matter what you believe about it, people don't know what's going to happen next. And we, Christians, have the answer. We, Christians, have Jesus Christ who gives hope, clears the confusion, heals the bitterness. And we need to be out there. And I really reiterate what Matt said about the, the community. Get out there. You know, one of the things that I've found with our, in our community is often the common comment was, you know, churches come into our community for six months and then none of us go to church, so they leave us. We've been working for six years with these people in our community. We're only now starting to see results because you stick with them. You build them. So get them behind anything in the community where there's an opportunity to share to overcome bitterness, I got to, sorry, I got off my subject. Overcoming bitterness is coming to Christ and surrendering to the Lord Jesus, bowing before him, admitting we're a sinner, admitting that we need him, admitting. And the one wonderful thing about Christ is when you call on his name, if you read further down in Romans, it says this, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. You will be a child of God. But there's another area that I think we need to do as well. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Honestly, it's not hard to understand, is it? Why do we struggle? Why do we struggle in this area? We need to come before the Lord and ask him to help us forgive. And we all, all have to do it. There's things in our lives that we know we need to forgive other people. It may not be all the time, but there may be things that happen in our lives that we start saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with that person anymore. You know, my dad uh, did some things that were not right, and uh, we got separated from him. And basically, us kids hated him, except our youngest, because she didn't really know what had happened. She was still in the bath, and it all happened, and it went down. My brother, for 30 years, did not talk to my father because he was angry, he was bitter. And I can only say it was because I became a Christian that I actually forgave my dad. Now, I was 19, that was seven years later, that I actually ended up forgiving my father. But it was only because of Christ. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. My brother had to wait till my father was in Tauranga Hospital dying before he realized you know, so often we hold on to this stuff and all the Lord is saying, forgive, doesn't mean you forget. I think people have a, a wrong understanding of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that you will forget it. We don't forget stuff. Our mind is that great that, that, great that God has made it. We won't forget stuff. But you make an effort to forgive people. And that may mean going up and just talking to that person. It doesn't mean that justice stops. If something has been done wrong, justice continues, but you can forgive. It doesn't mean that you have to be best mates again, although you may be. But it does mean freedom for you. Because when bitterness and, grudge takes, and grudges take over our life, it's not the person we're bitter to that has struggled. It's us. It's you and I. We're the one that struggles. They're continuing on their lives and, and, and their potential, and we are controlled by what we have seen and, what we, and, our, and our bitterness. But it does mean you have freedom and you can do what God wants you to do. It does mean that you can live to your potential as a Christian, whether it's in ministry, in full-time ministry, whether it's at work, ministering at work, whether it's at, at university ministering, you can live your life to its potential. But it starts with forgiveness. We're going to the Lord's Supper, I understand, from here. And I'd encourage you, let's not be an Absalom. Let's not allow it to destroy us. If you have to forgive a parent, a child, a friend, a mate, do it. Because you will experience what it's like to be free from that. You have the opportunity. Absalom didn't take us. Maybe you can take yours. Let's pray. Father, we see in the life of Absalom 
the total bitterness he felt because of what happened to his sister. And it controlled his life to the point to his destruction. But Lord, you have given us the opportunity today to come to you, to call on your name, and have that strength to forgive those around us. Lord, I pray that each of us will take that opportunity and live that Christian life that you've asked us to to live, forgiving as you forgave us completely, without condition. Lord, may each of us today consider people that we may need to forgive and freely forgive them, seeking them out, talking to them, freeing us from any grudge and bitterness in our lives. Father, we know we can do this only through you. Therefore, we call on your name again and say, Lord, strengthen us, encourage us, and help us. In Jesus' name.